0: Man, thank you to the choir and to uh, Dr. Newt for the blessing of what we just got to experience um. and hear about our fair Lord Jesus's beauty. May that be what actually shines as we turn our attention to God's word this morning. And if you want to join me, you can join me on page 1015 of your pew Bible. We're going to be in 1 Peter again. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, but I'm actually going to pick up reading in verse 21. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, picking up from verse 21, says this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his help as we Seek to interpret it with a humble heart today. Gracious God and Father, we have already confessed this morning like Isaiah's people did that to come before you is to feel our transgressions multiplied and to hear our sins testify against us because our transgressions stick with us. And God, no no area of teaching in the church brings out our own or another sin against us, like the most intimate sins that we experience in the context of our relationships and marriages. So, Father, I ask that as we come, you would fill me with all unction, with all wisdom and power and humility, that your Spirit would help me give clarity on a passage that could be so easily misinterpreted. And more than anything, Lord Jesus, I pray that what would shine forth in this moment is the glory of you, our fairest Lord, who, as Isaiah assured us earlier, that you are the one who will clothe us, even in the midst of our sinfulness, with the garments of your salvation, because you are making us your special bride. So as we come, help us come in humble reliance upon you and with your help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to be honest, y'all. It's with trembling hands that I have prepared for this passage this week. Because I, I think if you were here last week, you heard Davis, our brother, is the REF campus pastor at Southern Miss, preach on uh, the, the, the passage about servanthood and submission. And he said, he had this great one-liner that was like, to throw the word submission out into the middle of a congregation feels like someone's just thrown a live grenade. And you don't know what's going to happen with it. And um, this passage feels a little bit more intense, to be frank, because it's, it's almost like instead of just someone th- lobbing a grenade, it's, it's almost like you're trying to sprint across a field full of mines while people actually lob grenades at you. Because there's so many landmines of how we can interpret this passage wrongly. So many and my heart today is that if you hear anything, you're going to hear uh, not something that would make you walk away feeling shame about your marriage or our relationships, but that you would understand the tenderness of our high priest Jesus, who covers over our shamefulness in all of the ways that we fail. Because Peter's been drawing a beautiful picture about what it looks like to be God's holy temple. As people that he's dwelling among, he's been helping us understand that Jesus is the one who's actually endured the shame for us so that we don't have to live in shame, but we can trust him to empower us as we seek to live faithfully in the ways that God has called us to live as servants who embody their relationships with Christ-like humility. And that's the big idea that I want us to see this morning is that Peter wants us to know that when we embody our relationships with Christ-like humility, we will faithfully endure and overcome the cursed culture of hostility. When we embody our relationships with Christ-like humility, we will faithfully endure and overcome our cursed culture of hostility. And we're going to see this through two ways. We're going to see it through the ways that that uh, that Peter calls husbands and wives to embody Christ like humility in a countercultural way. He's going to call them to embody Christ like humility as countercultural husbands and wives, and then he's going to talk to them about faithfully enduring and overcoming the cursed culture of this world. And so as we come, really, I just want you to hear wherever you're at in your relationships, wherever you're at in your marriage, wherever you're at in how you express who you are uh, as, a, as a Christian man or woman, or if you're someone who's skeptical of those stereotypes, the heart of our Savior is that we would walk in the joyful love of God of, of, The life-giving relationships that he outlines here for us. And as I go through this passage, I'm actually going to try to articulate a couple of the landmines in how we do this, not because I'm trying to uh, be confrontational in how I talk about it, but because this, this passage just deals so much with how people are actually addressing things culturally in the context of their suffering. And so Before we get to our first point of how he calls them to embody the culture of Christ-like humility, we have to realize the suffering that he's been calling them to. Peter's been building an argument uh, of of how they're to respond in the midst of suffering. Peter's in the middle of a larger section that we started last week, and that's why I started in verse 21 this week, uh, essentially where he's calling the people to live honorable lives socially submissive to authority in the midst of an empire that wants to kill them and a couple of other reminders is that he's been expounding if you look back in chapter 2 verse 12 on the idea of what's motivating all of his teaching here he's saying keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what Peter's trying to say. He's saying, as you live out your witness faithfully, even as you are exiles in the land where you dwell, remember the mission that God has called you upon. Because how you embody these beautiful uh, relationships that God has given us, how you live this out, It's actually the way that you witness to the world who doesn't know him and actually is hostile towards him. And that's what brings us to our first point in this passage. That's why he calls them as husbands and wives to embody Christ-like humility. And let's be honest, y'all. I mean, if you look at just a cursory read of this passage, you wonder almost if Peter is having a bad day with the women in his life. To be frank, I mean, six out of seven verses are focused on women, Uh, He literally tells them to submit, which we've already talked about how confrontational that can sound. He challenges their cultural standards of beauty, and he actually seems to reinforce women putting themselves in a slippery situation where their husbands are leading in a cowardly way, with a reference to Sarah and Abraham. Oh, and by the way, he calls them weaker than husbands. This can be very difficult to hear if we don't let it speak to us from that humble Christ-like leading beautiful perspective that he's been showing that Jesus embodies towards us and the key word that this passage turns on is the word likewise because that tells you everything that he's about to say to both wives and husbands is meant to be in the same manner that word for likewise is is what the passage turns on because Uh, it, It connects it to the previous thought and everything that he said about submitting to authority and living lives honorably in a culture where it's difficult to do it. And to engage this passage, well, we have to see how it's anchored there. It's used to address both husbands and wives in the particular manner that they're supposed to exercise their roles in marriage. And for the wives in particular... For us to treat this passage as if it's just like, we, we, we sort of like go into automatic, like, oh, this is, this is gender roles teaching about how husbands and wives are supposed to order their relationship. Like, this is going to support everything else that the New Testament says about husbands and wives in marriage. But the context is that these wives in particular and these husbands are suffering. They're called to submit to their pagan husbands In the context of their suffering. And there's some really reckless ways that that has been applied in the church, to be honest with you. The attitude of submission is that both husbands and wives would submit to every human authority because they're ultimately submitting to the Lord's sake. Just like servants are called to submit to their masters, even if they endure unjust persecution from them, because it's ultimately to the Lord that they're submitting. In other words, husbands and wives are supposed to live out their roles in servant-minded, Christ-like, humble ways. They do it in different ways that express how both of them actually are dignified in how they do it. Because they have different roles that God has given in the order with which he has designed man and woman to function They're both called to servant-minded submission. Ephesians 4.21 says, Submit to one another, or 5.21, says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We hear this word submission and we instantly go uh, modern-day hackles and we just kind of shut down our ears because we actually forget that this is a mutual submission to authority for the Lord's sake. And I'm just to outline what he says. I mean, he calls wives to subversive submission on a hopeful mission. Okay? That's the first two verses. Then he reveals the heart of those wives' mission by telling them what they're supposed to value is internal character over external conformity. Then he says this is how holiness has always hoped in following God. But then he turns his attention to a husband's in verse 7. And he calls them to similarly submit, but to do so by powerfully leading their wives in a way that exercises Christ-like gentleness. You could summarize the whole passage as live in submission to the Lord by using your position to bless one another on your relational mission. Live in submission to bless on your relational mission. That's what... That's what Peter's essentially saying, both are supposed to take up an attitude that is meant to model in this passage. And so as we come to how he tells wives in particular to embody this Christ-like humility, he first tells them to, sub, to, to be subject. It's, it's the word in Greek where literally they are told to place themselves under the order that God has created in their relationships with their husbands, to place themselves under their authority. And he tells them why in verse two or verse one he says, because even he says, well, he says first the extent of how they're supposed to submit, even if they're pagans, essentially, even if they don't know Jesus, you're still to recognize this order because the reason is they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives in the in the early church these, these women and that came to faith in the gospel, came to faith in a culture that treated them without the same dignity in very many ways as men. It was a little bit different by the time the Roman culture came around and some of the gender roles started to shift in the Roman Empire so that women could actually hold things like public office. But essentially, uh, Greek culture treated women as property. Uh, and uh, Roman culture still viewed women as... Uh, sort of lesser than men in some ways, but, but essentially women had almost no place in public life. They were thought very little of and treated uh, as, as if they were only the property of their husbands. They passed from the authority of their fathers to the authority of their husbands. And Peter is writing to urgently address a crisis situation for these newly converted women. It wasn't uncommon for women to take another form of religion than their husbands, but it was very uncommon for them to express that religion exclusively apart from their husband's pagan religion. It was so, uh, so heinous that, particularly in Roman culture, women were actually expected to take the religion of their husbands, and for them to convert was actually viewed as insubordination to their husbands. It was also a challenge... It considered a challenge to society as a whole, that these women were basically living rebellious lives by coming to faith in Jesus. But Peter reminds them that just because your husbands aren't believers, it doesn't mean that you're not supposed to live within the order that God has created in your relationship. And in fact, this is actually the way that you fulfill what I've called you to do in keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. But before we go any further, let me tell you what you should not hear this statement that that Peter's calling his audience to as. This is not a submission that they're called to. That's like that of, of uh, the main character and the big fat my big fat Greek wedding. You know, my big fat Greek wedding is about a thirty three year old uh, Tula Portokalos. She's the member of a large, loud, intrusive Greek family uh, that only wants her to get married and have children. She's somewhat frumpy and meek. This is the, the Wikipedia designation of this. She works in her family's Chicago restaurant, dancing Zorbas, but she longs to do something more with her life. Uh, one day she's smitten by a romantic interest and she, she recognizes I'm never gonna get to where I'm not where I am, where I want to be, if I don't leave where I am. And so she presents the idea to her dad to go back to school and work on computers, but her dad's just protesting, saying, You only want to leave me. Well, Tula's mother, Maria, ultimately tells uh, her father, like, we got to let her do this, man. She needs to better herself, and uh, she's not trying to leave us. She's just trying to help herself become professionally better. Uh, and and she, so she goes back to school. She starts to ditch the frumpy look. She, she sort of conforms to cultural standards of beauty, and she becomes this really attractive woman that begins to feel a sense of empowerment as she does so because she's starting to draw the attention of this romantic interest even more. But there's the question of like, okay, if I get married, my, da- my dad doesn't want me to get married. And so what, what she does is she goes to her aunt who runs a travel business. And she says, hey, can I come work for you? Uh, and the aunt says, sure, you can come work for me. But like, we'll have to talk to your dad about it, essentially. And she says, dad will never go for this. And Aunt Vula is her name. She tells Tula, she goes, uh yes, your dad will never go for this because the husband is the head of the house and we can't violate what he says. Yes, you're right. But then she says, but what he forgets is the woman is the neck and she can turn the head any way that she wants to. (laughs) There's a way that we can sort of listen to this call to submission as a subversion that essentially means we might sit down on the outside while we're standing up on the inside, as one theologian put it. That even as we're trying to conform to what's expected of us in God's design, we do it with resentment at that design in our heart and with a desire to control. But Peter says, no, that's not the way that you're supposed to do it. It's not that kind of subversive submission. Because he's referenced Jesus in the passage immediately prior. Jesus wasn't trying to submit to his father's will and suffering that he might subvert or control the father. It was the expression of the father's love for his sinful people that he was calling into relationship with himself. And it's what what Peter is saying is, is the wife uh, in, in this passage is supposed to entrust herself to her husband willingly, even if he may not treat her as he should. And even if he would use his position to harm her. But that brings up another landmine for us. Because I'll be honest with you. I'm in counseling circles. I'm I'm getting a master's in counseling degrees. This passage has been used to justify women staying in abusive marriages. And that's just not what it teaches. The New Testament nowhere tells a woman that she is to stay in an abusive marriage. She is not to submit to a husband who is supposed to treat her with dignity and to exercise his role with humility towards her, especially if he is trying to harm her and repeatedly doing so. The New Testament invites us to see marriage through the lens of Christ's relationship with the church and that both wives and husbands while they fulfill their desire to conform to the order that God has ordained, they are to mimic the posture in which Jesus does it. Peter's pointing out that when these women in Asia Minor seek to be godly wives who serve their families, they have a powerful opportunity to effect a powerful witness in the lives of their pagan husbands by submission. To entrust themselves to their husbands who could treat them poorly is to live on that mission. But in doing so, he actually gives them a character for how they're supposed to do it. He tells them not to settle for cultural standards of beauty in how they do it. Don't try to submit to a culture that's going to call you to conform on the outside without recognizing what God wants to do in you on the inside. Loose, this is why he says, uh, don't let your, your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or fine clothes, essentially. Peter's calling for a behavior that would have been valued in society, He's saying be virtuous, focus on the inside, but Roman culture would have focused on the inside, too. He, he wanted, Roman culture, Greek culture, wanted to cultivate Virtue and their women as well as their men. But none of the Greek writers would actually write to women because they didn't think them worthy or dignified enough to actually speak to. And Peter in speaking to these first century women is actually violating social convention in amazing ways as he helps them navigate what it actually looks like to live as disciples of Christ even when your husbands aren't believers. He's calling them to value a modest heart, not to just be conservative traditional women. But that brings up another landmine in how we talk about modesty. Anytime we talk about modesty in the church, we far too easily give in to the same cultural ways of thinking about the discussion in our day and age. We we, we start to worry about skirt lengths. We start to worry about hairstyles. uh, We start to uh, sort of similarly uh, conform our standards of beauty to a cultural uh, expression, which we should not. Peter is calling these women to take on virtue because it's ultimately what God values. It's precious in his sight. And if we don't conform to the cultural standards of beauty, we we do this in the church, but we also do it in our society as as a whole, where women are told that it's through their sexuality and good looks that they actually control other men. Peter's saying both of us are wrong. And he's telling us, look, the modesty that you are going for is a gentle and quiet spirit. It's not just a feminized characteristic that he's inviting them to model, but these words are used to describe the character of Jesus. And he's saying, put on Christ-likeness. Become like Jesus, even in the midst of a marriage where all your actions could be viewed as hostile and you could be treated poorly for it. But he does not tell them to value that mission to the detriment of their personal well-being. And in order to get there, he he points them to the hope that women have, the hope that holy women have always had in verses 5 and 6. He references in verses 5 to 6, he says, this is how the holy women hoped in God, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, this gentle and quiet spirit that was precious in God's sight. That's how they adorned themselves. And it functioned by submitting to their own husbands. And they made witnesses to Sarah's submission to Abraham. And this is somewhat of a passing reference of Sarah's submission to Abraham. There's only one place in Scripture where Sarah actually does what Peter is referencing to. She calls Abraham Lord or Master. And and the interesting thing is that what, what Peter is telling these women is he's saying, God's women have always hoped in this kind of holiness because it was the way that God was pleased, even as their husbands were too cowardly to deal with them appropriately. He's saying that this is the way that Sarah... When, when, when Abraham was worried that whatever king he was about to go and uh, was inquiring about Sarah, his wife, he, he knew and told Sarah, he said, say that you're my sister so that, you won't, so that I won't be killed. He valued and prioritized his own life over his wife's. He acted in a cowardly way. And yet Sarah still submitted to Abraham's leadership and said she was his sister. Why? Why? not because of Abraham's character, but because her hope was ultimately in God. And she knew that the God who had called her on the same mission as her husband would be the very one who anchored her hope to be cared for, even in perilous conditions. That's the kind of humble submission he's calling wives to. And it's beautiful. And women can actually do that when men fulfill the obligation that he places on them in verse 7. He's asking the women to embody Christ like humility as countercultural women. But he's also asking the men to gently bear out their headship in the same manner of Christ's humble meekness. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Edmund Clowney says that it's important to recognize that this path of Christian living that Peter is calling out looks different for husbands and wives, but again, they're both called to follow Christ in humble and compassionate love. He says that men are supposed to live with him in an understanding way, literally a knowing way of living together. In other words, husbands must know and dwell with their wife in a way that recognizes their delicate preciousness. They must recognize and know the delicate preciousness of their wife's nature and feelings. This is the fact to recognize essentially that women are made different from men. And that those differences are beautiful gifts of God's distinctive love to his people and to mankind. And how they're to express that in their relationships comes off as showing honor to women as the weaker vessel. Now, let's talk about that word weaker vessel because that's another landmine, okay? I don't think Peter, it's been justified throughout the church the history of the church, to look at this passage and say that Peter might be insinuating that women are actually morally or intellectually weaker than men. Let's just stop and not go there because that's not right. But what Peter is saying is he's pointing out, as a man, you bear both a position and a strength that is greater than your wife's, and you are the one that is to responsibly steward her in an honorable way that does not lead to her shame. Because these husbands are in the same culture that these wives are. And these husbands are in the same culture where women were treated as if the only expression of their dignity was what physical beauty they could muster or how wealthy their dress made them appear. But what Peter's calling husbands to is to recognize the beautiful dignity of their wives that they have a functional equality that they bear with them, even if they have different ways that they order how their household lives with the wife in submission and the husband as head. And he's writing briefly to husbands in this way because there's a, a tendency that he's pointing out. Because think about who's writing this, guys. Peter, he's the guy who, who when he thought Jesus was the Messiah thought that it meant all glory and power had come. This is manifest in the way that when Jesus is, is uh, the servant, the high priest's servant, Malchus, they come to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? He's like, you ain't going to take my Messiah. He takes out his sword and chops off the high priest's servant's ear. And what does Jesus tell him? He says, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And the kingdom that Jesus was building was not one that was going to be built on that kind of strength. Because first he came in mercy and meekness and love before he comes in glorified exaltation and power. And Peter knows what it's like to be a man in a society that struggles to live out that dynamic of power well. But he also knows that there's a passive way that that power can manifest in men too when men are just so afraid to take on the leadership that God has ordained for them. You can either exercise your role as a man, Peter says, in a way that is culturally geared towards the use of power uh, to subjugate others, or you can be so afraid of doing that that you actually don't take the responsibility that God has given you seriously and you fail to lead. And, guys, I'm a man who struggles to do this well. I think every single person in this room struggles to do this well. But Peter's asking these men and women to be countercultural in unique ways that embody their beautiful differences with Christ like humility. Because that's the way Peter's telling them that they're going to endure a world and culture that is cursed with hostility. As our passage shows, they'll find themselves strengthened as they embody these differences. But why? Like, what's the the power and the beauty of this order that Jesus is giving to relationships or that Peter is giving to relationships? Well, if you think back to the garden, when God set Adam and Eve in their respective places, it was impossible for Adam to fulfill the mandate that God had given him to create a world that reflected his glory without a helper fit for him. And that helper was Eve. And as God presents Eve as the first wife, it's this beautiful moment at the beginning of Scripture. That's this blessed wedding bliss where God himself presents Eve as one of the greatest gifts Adam his man could ever receive but then it's cursed it's cursed and one of the functions of that curse is that your relationships will be exercised in such a way that you actually try to harm one another instead of lovingly submitting to the order that God has given and what Peter is saying is as you live out your lives in a way embodies Christ-like humility in your relationships. You actually undo the power of that curse. You tangibly work back the curse as God's representatives in a society that reflects that hostile culture, that, that culture that would curse for weakness and that would use strength in such an awful way to subjugate others. And Peter tells husbands that it's so important that they exercise their, their leadership in such a gentle way. Because if they don't, God himself will not hear their prayers. They'll be hindered. That's terrifying to think about. But it's also helpful for us to understand the limits of submission and the way it's supposed to bless both of us in this passage. The limits of submission are demonstrated in how God will not, uh, He will not tolerate a husband who uses his position to subjugate his wife. So, why should that wife tolerate being subjugated by that husband? That's the limit because God Himself won't tolerate it. God embraces us with a beautiful, merciful love in the gospel. But that merciful love which he embraces us in will not tolerate evil within our perspective, which is why he invites and empowers us to become different through the power of Christ's shed blood. Because we can become different in the way that we exercise these things. Through Christ. Because that's what he did. Because at the heart of this passage, there's a fear that both husbands and wives are living out of, which is really just an embodiment of the curse. It's the fear that others will retaliate against me. But that's why this is such a powerful picture of how relationships thrive in the midst of suffering. Because when husbands and wives or men and women in the church live this way, they take on the resurrection life and power of Jesus and effectively undo that curse and all of the fearful condemnation it would bring in the midst of God's people, so that they bear out a powerful witness that you can't argue with because of how convincing it is. It's the living embodiment of the power of the gospel to change sinners who would other be hostile dissidents living for their own kingdoms. Because that's what we're all doing, apart from grace. It's a way of foreshadowing the reversal of the great curse that fell on man that will come when Christ himself, who first came in mercy, also comes in power and glory to finally order the world the way that it should be and all the sad things come untrue. Because that's the blessing he wants to give us today. And so it just means, what what does this mean practically in our relationships? It means for a church like ours, in a conservative, traditional space, we have got to be really careful about the ways that we bear out our Christ-like humility. Because sometimes the gospel will cause you to exercise that humility in a way that actually violates social convention. And every one of us comes with our own experiences of what the church or loved ones or our world have taught us was the standard of how to be a man or a woman in the world. And sometimes what was presented as biblical was actually more cultural. There's no place more rife with that than the modern day expression of how we think about being men and women. And Peter's saying that we have to be men and women who separate What is our cultural expression of masculinity and femininity from what is the biblical blessing of how God designs us to live? But that's not very practical to just say. It's actually really practical and powerfully told in one of my favorite books I've read since I've came to Mississippi. Uh, I don't know if you you guys are familiar with, with the book, uh, or the writer Harrison Scott Key, he wrote the book, The World's Largest Man. It was essentially about what it was like to grow up as a young man who had a dad like he did in deep South Mississippi, and it's a beautiful story. It's not, and and you have to be really careful what Mississippi literature you pick or what deep Southern literature you pick because there's this deeply cultural antagonism towards most of the Southern way of life. But this is one of those stories that faithfully tells what it was like. And at the end of the book, he talks, he's, he's actually talking about a time frame in his life with his wife uh, where, um, where they were in the midst of conflict and probably headed towards divorce. And what actually stopped him from doing that was the way that she carried herself around his family who had what he thought were some of the wrong expressions of how men and women should relate. He tells the story of when he was a young child, one of the things that anchored his life was Sunday afternoon dinner in Coldwater, Mississippi, where they would all be gathered around the table and uh, they would just enjoy a rich and sweet time of fellowship. But there was this sort of peculiarity to it that even as a young child, he felt like, maybe this is a little strange and maybe I just want some more cake, so I don't really want to think about this. Um... But the way that it peculiarly embodied himself was the men would eat first while the women waited in the other room and socialized. And it was something that caused him a little bit of confusion. Like, why do we do this? And there were plenty of really good cultural reasons. Like like the fact that it was a primarily agricultural place. uh, It was a farming family. Like the men ate first so they could get back to their work. But when he meets his wife in college... And he invites her home. He starts to broach the topic as girlfriend and boyfriend of like, hey, this is how we do things at Thanksgiving. And he says that, uh, so here's the thing. He was riding in the car with her. He'd been playing some sort of road game. Riding in the car with her and says, so here's the thing. The men are going to eat first. And she goes, huh? He goes, the men eat first. She goes, okay. What, what is that supposed to mean? And he says, well, the men eat first without the women. And she goes, huh? That sounds weird. He goes, well, it's just kind of what we've always done. You know, we just kind of eat first while the women wait, and we sort of make awkward eye contact with them while we do. And she goes, that's the stupidest thing i ever heard of. And he goes, but it's just the way we've always done it. It's not weird. And he says that uh, when they uh, when they actually get to the house, she defiantly says, "I'm not like before they get there. She's like, I'm not gonna like wait to eat. That's ridiculous." But the way that she manifests that at Thanksgiving meal is that she, you know, she's coming in. She introduces herself to all of his family. Lovingly sits down at the table, and someone awkwardly goes, "Well, let's eat." She doesn't move. She just smiles politely. Harrison Scott Key says it was like one of the most awkward moments of his early relationship with his wife. And he says his grandfather cleared his throat, prayed, and they had a lovely meal together around the table. And he said later when he was at enmity with this woman whom he'd been married to for years and years and years, what actually drew him back to her was to think of her as that beautiful woman who lovingly sat around that table Without condemnation, without, without uh, just this really ugly protest, but loving, winsome beauty. He said, how could I ever have considered leaving her? That's the kind of beautiful submission that has the power to remove hostility in the midst of Of our relational brokenness and in the midst of our marriages that might be hostile with one another. And that's what our Lord wants to bless us with, friends. If that's the way that they exercise, that this is what Jesus calls us to, what would keep you from doing this? Are you afraid to submit? Are you afraid to lead? Friends, our faithful high priest empowers us to overcome a world that is a cursed culture of hostility by simply modeling his humility. That's how we do it. Let's ask his help as we pray and sing. Gracious God and Father, as we come to the end of worship today, we are so grateful for the fact that even in the midst of all of the hard things that we've heard, even in the midst where we find ourselves affronted and our sins testifying against us, Father, we stand before a high priest who covers us with the beauty of his garment, with a headdress of salvation, and literally sings over us as you empower us by your Spirit to live out these beautiful realities in our midst. Father, we ask that you would help us to do so in a way that honors and glorifies you. And we ask this all for the sake and glory of your great and triune name. That's in Christ's name we pray, amen.